Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to read the first 17 verses. And as you turn to that passage, I want to say, just say a few words about the context of these verses, because the context is vitally important if we're to properly understand what's going on here. And put simply, the context is one of utter despair. You see, in chapter 39, Isaiah has just announced the complete destruction of Jerusalem through a Babylonian invasion. He is writing in the 8th century BC, but God has shown him by divine revelation that Judah will be completely destroyed, Jerusalem will be reduced to a rubble, and the people will be forcefully taken captive and removed into exile. And all that happened in 586 BC. But the big overarching question over all of this is, if this happens to Jerusalem, where does that leave the plans and purposes of God for his people and for the world? Remember, these were the chosen people of God. These were the descendants of Abraham. And it appeared to them that God had promised to use them to reverse the fall and bless the whole world. And yet as they are defeated by the Babylonian war machine, as they're dragged from their homes and have their dreams annihilated, the big question hanging over all of this is, what hope is there for the future? What hope is there for them And indeed, what hope is there for the rest of the world? And it's into that dark and despairing situation that Isaiah writes chapter 40. So straight after the terrible prediction of devastating judgment, Isaiah writes this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsel? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. 
They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands, although they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. We've all seen on our TV screens, haven't we, the horror that is unfolding in Ukraine. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, spoke about an operation to demilitarize Ukraine, and we've seen in graphic terms what that has meant. It has meant tanks and missiles. It has meant gun battles and bloodshed. And it has meant an attack that seeks to fundamentally change the political and social landscape of Ukraine. And while we do not yet know what will happen, it's very easy for us to understand that if we're in Ukraine right now, this would be a time of great fear and anxiety. It would be a time when it seems your whole world is being turned upside down, and it would be a time when you don't really know what the future holds for you. Even if you're a Christian, you would have so many questions about what is going on, why this is happening, and what the future of the church of Jesus Christ in that country might look like. And when I meet those Christian leaders, when again, which I pray I will, because I count them many as friends, and when all of this is over, when I meet them, I will ask them some questions. Questions about what has happened. Questions about how they dealt with the overwhelming grief and anxiety that they met with people. But one of the questions I will also ask them is, what got you through this time? As you dealt with all the missiles flying through the air, as you dealt with the uncertainty and the problems, as you were fearful for the future, how did you remain faithful to God? And how did you remain firm when everything around you seemed to be falling apart? Now, of course, I don't know what they will say, but I can hazard a guess that part of their answer will include some of the truths found in the passage that we've just read this evening. Yes, of course, there are different circumstances and there are very different reasons behind the two events, but that sense of the unknown, that sense of events being completely out of control, and that sense of bewilderment as your whole world is turned upside down comes very close to the events that sets the context of Isaiah chapter 40. Because as I explained earlier, these verses were written to help God's people deal with what seemed like a catastrophic disaster. In the previous chapter, we have the prophecy from Isaiah that God's people are going into exile. They are told they're going to experience in Jerusalem being conquered, the temple being destroyed, and the people being defeated and taken off into a foreign land. And it will all come about because of their sin and their persistent refusal for centuries to turn from their idolatry and follow the one true God. But as one commentator put it, no sooner do we have the message of disaster than we have the message of comfort. Because Isaiah 40 marks a major change in the book and the ministry of the great prophet. You see, for the previous 39 chapters, Isaiah has been speaking to his own people in his own time. He's been warning them of future judgment. He's been speaking to them of their sin, their complacency, and their rebellion. And he's been pleading with them to repent from their sin and know God's blessing and forgiveness. But with the events surrounding chapter 39, Isaiah now knows that's not going to happen. He now knows the line has been crossed, the prophecy has been made, and people are not going to repent. Instead, they're going to experience the consequences of their actions. And so what he now does is change his audience. He now lifts his eyes to the future, and instead of speaking to his own people in his own time, he now speaks to those in exile. 
He's now speaking to those people way in the future, over a hundred years in the future, and he writes to those weeping by the rivers of Babylon. And he does that because he wants to help them get through the catastrophic disaster that they were now experiencing. Well, okay, that sounds good enough, but really you might ask, what's that got to do with us tonight? After all, it's highly unlikely that we're going to experience an invasion by Russian forces or be carried off into exile. So really, why should we be concerned about any of this at all? Well, yes, that's right. An invasion and physical exile are not likely to be part of our future. But I still believe these verses are incredibly relevant to us because sadly, most of us have had or will have the experience of living through terribly distressing times, which means most of us will need the truths that are found in these verses. And there is always the potential for distress and uncertainty, isn't there? So, for example, if you think about the things that have happened to or in this country, there's plenty of potential for anxiety. We all know what's happened from 2020 and COVID-19 and the the resulting lockdown. We know that has brought about fear and anxiety into people's lives. And as a result, mental health issues have just shot through the roof. And if it wasn't COVID, well, over the last decade or so, it's been terrorism or financial crashes or Brexit or something else that we're constantly being told has the potential to change our lives and affect us deeply. And then in our own personal lives, we know there too, life can be very hard and very difficult. The reality is we live in a fallen world amongst fallen people. And for most of us, that's going to mean times of trouble. I could come in the form of a call from the doctor saying that he wants to talk to you about your test results. It could come as a result of relationships turning sour or people disappointing you. It could come as finances change or jobs are lost. You well know that the possibility of personal tragedies in this world are endless. And in those moments, the question remains, how are you going to get through those times? When your whole world is threatened and nothing makes sense anymore, how are we going to get through those times and yet still remain faithful to the good and sovereign God that we say we believe in? Well, Isaiah 40 is one of those passages that is meant to help us do just that. And while we may not be experiencing any trouble yet, it is still worth our while to consider these verses because if we don't need these truths now, the strong likelihood is one day we will. So with that in mind, let's look at these wonderful verses. And as we do so, I want us to consider three vital truths. And the first of those is the fact that God's promises are still real. As Isaiah writes to comfort and encourage these people, one of the first things he says is, God has not forgotten them. God has not given up on them. Instead, God's promises to them are still real and they are still in play. And that point does need to be made. Because let's be honest, if you're in exile in Babylon with no land, no temple, and no king, things look bleak. The promises made to Abraham, to David, and to the people through the prophets all seem worthless now. But Isaiah says to think like that would be a huge mistake. So look please at verses 3 to 6 where he says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord 
has spoken. Now, at first glance, that doesn't appear to be anything about God keeping his promises. But to understand what's going on here, we probably need to remember what happens when our our monarch comes to visit a place. Because what happens? Well, what happens is the place is prepared for a visit. The school or the, the business or the property is made to look its best. I've even heard of times when grass was painted green in order to make it look right. Because the coming of the monarch means you've got to prepare for their visit. Well, take that picture and bring it to these verses. For you see, the picture that Isaiah uses here would have been very familiar to the people. They would have been very familiar with the idea of a highway being prepared for a victorious king returning in triumph and and with a, a wonderful procession. But what was not familiar to them was the type of language being used here. Because what Isaiah is talking about here is a major work of engineering. We have mountains being flattened, we have valleys being filled, we have rocks being blasted, all of which they could never have done. But the idea is the greatness of the highway being prepared points us to the greatness of the king that's coming. In wonderful poetic language, Isaiah is saying to these people, the promised king is coming. The great Messiah will arrive. The glory of the Lord will be revealed And as a result, you exiles are coming home. And as you go through the following chapters, you find this is the theme that comes up again and again and again. And indeed, what Isaiah explains is that God is going to expand on these promises and keep them in ways you could never have imagined. So, for example, he will say, not only is God going to bring these people home from their physical exile, he's also going to deal with their spiritual exile. For what has been the problem with these people all along? It's been their hearts. It's been they draw near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. Well, Isaiah says God is going to deal with that problem. He's going to change and restore them. And he's going to do that through this figure Isaiah describes as God's suffering servant. The one who it is said will be a light to the Gentiles. The one who has said will defeat death itself. And the one who has said will suffer and die and bring forgiveness to others. As God lays on him the iniquity of us all. That's what the Isaiah promises in the following chapters. Which should all sound very familiar to you. Because who is the suffering servant? It's of course Jesus. Which is why in Luke chapter 3, these very verses in Isaiah are used to describe the ministry of John the Baptist who has gone before God's king to prepare his way. Now I know we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves and there's a whole lot more that could be said about how God uses Isaiah to point forward to Jesus Christ. But if you just take a step back a bit and look at the big picture, you see what Isaiah is saying. He's saying God's promises are still on track. Despite the people's rebellion and exile, God's promises still stand. For God is someone who always keeps his word. And isn't that something wonderful to know? Isn't it wonderful to know that disaster, whether national or personal, cannot derail God's plans and purposes for his world or for his people? And that point is further reinforced to us as we think about what happened to these people. Because with the benefits of hindsight, we can see that all of God's promises came true. So yes, the people did go into exile, just as God said. But they came back, just as God said. 
the great king and Messiah came, just as God said. And he brought salvation and liberty and spiritual restoration, just as God said. So with the privilege of history, we can see God kept his word. And he kept it in greater and bigger and more magnificent ways than anyone could ever have imagined. And friends, that should be a huge encouragement to us. Because the same is true for us today. So as we think about the big picture promises of God, no matter what our individual circumstances may be, we can be sure that they are still on track now. God's purposes for time and eternity cannot be derailed by national or international events. So Christ will build his church. God's kingdom will grow and Christ's return will bring perfect justice and peace in a new creation. And right now, that might look look as unlikely as the Babylonian exiles having a future in their own land again, but the fulfillment of one set of promises reminds us that the other promises will also be kept. As will the more personal promises that God gives to his people. Promises like, I will never leave you or forsake you. Promises like, God's people, for God's people, all things work together for good. Now, as you know, it's good as God defines it, not as we define it. But nevertheless, the promises are still real. Now, just like those whom Isaiah originally spoke to, we still have loads of questions. We may not know how or why or when, but we can be sure that the promises God has made will be fulfilled. And as we go through our lives with all the potential for trouble and distress, that's something we really need to know. So then as Isaiah seeks to bring comfort to these exiles, he teaches them God's promises are still real. The second major truth he teaches naturally flows on from that, and that is God's word is still true. As he speaks to those experiencing the horror and disaster of exile, he reminds them God's word is still true. And he does so in such a way as to highlight the utter uselessness of other sources of comfort and truth. So look at with me, please, at verses 6 to 8, where we read, A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Those are wonderful words, aren't they? They're wonderful at the best of times, but when you're in Babylon experiencing the disaster that was exile, you really need to know this. You really need to know that it's not the decrees of the king of Babylon that was controlling your destiny. You really need to know that it was not the glories of any human empire that will last forever. Instead, they are just like a flower. And that the greatest and most powerful human rulers are nothing more than grass. And yes, they can make their decrees. Yes, they can come up with their plans. But the simple reality is all flesh is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And friends, I would suggest to you that this is something we really need to get into our heads today. 
Some of you might have heard of a man called Lord Reith. In the 1920s, he helped establish the BBC, and he went on to serve as the first director general. Well, as time went on, things changed in our country and our society, and the BBC began to be more influenced by secularism and atheism, so much so that in the 1960s, a young producer was in a meeting with Reith. Reith, by that time, had left the BBC. I don't know why he was in the meeting, but he was. And in this meeting, this young producer was arguing against Christianity. He said, we need to stop producing religious programs. And in his arguments, he was mocking Christianity and saying the church was irrelevant to the modern world. And it said, Reith got up, told the young, the young producer to sit down. And in front of everyone else, he said, young man, the church of Jesus Christ will stand over the grave of the BBC. And you know, he's right. And he will be proved right. Any student of history will tell, be able to tell you that kingdoms come and go. Powerful rulers live and die. Human ideas and philosophies have their day. And then they are gone. But it is the word of God that stands forever. And friends, if you want a little example of that, all you need to do is look back 30 years or so and remember the fall of the Soviet Union. Sometimes I think we have forgotten just how momentous an event that it really was. But you see, for 30 years, there was this Cold War. You had America with its allies on one side, and you had the Soviet Union with the Eastern Bloc on the other. And right at the heart of the Soviet Union was Marxist communism, a political philosophy that was brought about a revolution that transformed the 20th century. And you know it was a system of thought that was fundamentally opposed to belief in God and Jesus Christ. But from the outside, it seemed so powerful, it seemed so enduring, and it seemed so permanent. And yet approximately 30 years ago, after decades in power, it all came crumbling down. And just in case we, get, we begin to get a bit too full of ourselves, we probably need to recognize that the same will happen with Western capital liberalism. Yes, the West might have won the Cold War in the 20th century, but there is no guarantee that we will continue to have the influence and power we have now. There's no guarantee that we will always be top dogs in this world. And indeed, there are many commentators, philosophers, and public thinkers who are deeply concerned for the future of the Western world. And they speak of the gradual decline of our influence and presence on the world scene. Now, I have no idea whether they're right or not, and at the end of the day, this is not meant to be a political commentary in the future of the Western world. But the point that we do need to make is this. Reith said the church of Jesus Christ will stand over the grave of the BBC, and he's right. But it will also stand over the grave of Marxist communism. It will stand over the grave of Western capital liberalism. And it will stand over the grave of every man-made philosophy, creed, and idea. Why? Well, it's because history has shown and God's word has revealed all flesh is grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but it's the word of our God which will stand forever. What difference should that make to us? Well, first of all, I suppose there's a rather obvious point for those who are not yet believers, and that is Please listen to what Isaiah has to say. And please do not dedicate your life to something that withers and fades and perishes. 
I know there are many voices out there. I know there are many competing ideas about what life is all about, what brings purpose and meaning, what we should be concerned with and what is important. And some of those can sound so convincing and so true. But friends, the reality is they are our grass. And their ideas will wither and perish. But there is one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is one who says he has come to bring life in all of its fullness. And there is one who has said he has come to meet our greatest needs, to restore our relationship with our Creator, to remove our guilt and sin, and to redeem this life and prepare us for the life to come. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the one whom Isaiah and all the rest of the Bible speaks of. And he calls you to believe in him, to trust him, and to know his blessing and salvation for yourself. And friends, I would plead with you, do not neglect his call. Yes, come and explore. Yes, come and examine his claims for yourself. Nobody is asking for you to make a blind leap in the dark. But do not neglect or reject him. Because it would be an utter tragedy to dedicate your life to something that does not matter and which will not last. And Christian friends, there is an equally obvious application to those of us who are already followers of Jesus. And that is, of course, be encouraged. God's promises are real because God's word is true. Yes, I know God's word can be ridiculed and mocked. I know on the traditional and social media, people love to make fun of those who believe in God and his truths. But here these verses plainly tell us to have a confidence in the authority, the relevance, and the reliability of God's word. And that confidence, we mean it will believe it to be true when we think about the big philosophical issues of life, such as capitalism and communism. It will mean we believe it to be true when we think about the big ethical issues that we all know about in the so-called culture wars of our society. And it will mean we believe it to be true about the everyday mundane issues of life, such as how we speak to others, where we go, what we value, how we use our time, our money, and our bodies. In all of these matters and so much more, God's word is true. And the call is to believe that. The call is to raise our heads and have confidence in the timeless truths of the Bible. And the call is to show that confidence by simply obeying what it says. In good times or in bad, it's God's word that should shape us. It's God's word that should direct us. Because ultimately, it's God's word that will stand forever. So then as Isaiah seeks to comfort these people, he reminds them God's promises are still real and God's word is still true. The final point he makes, which I'll only briefly cover, is that God's character is still great. As Isaiah teaches these people, he reminds them that God's character is still great. And we see that in verses 9 to, 9 to 17. Now don't worry, I'm not going to, be going to go through these in any detail. But I couldn't leave these verses out because they're so important to the comfort that Isaiah wants to bring. For I'm sure you know the objection to all of this, and that is, talk's cheap. Yeah, you can make your promises, but keeping it is an entirely different matter altogether. So how do I know God will be able to do what he says? And that is exactly what the issue that Isaiah addresses. And he does so by encouraging the people in verse 9 to behold your God. 
Now, I don't have time to go through these verses. But just, for example, look at what Isaiah says about God in verse 12. He's the one who measures the hollow of his hand, the waters in the hollow of his hand. So the Pacific Ocean that's so vast to us, well, God holds it in the cup of his hand. The same idea is found in the other part of the verse. For God is the one who has measured the vastness of the heavens and he's weighed the mighty mountains. Of course, these are just poetic pictures. God doesn't uh, have a physical hand. He didn't get out of scales and literally weigh the, the mountains. These are just poetic pictures. But they're poetic pictures that are designed to get over to these bewildered people the unparalleled greatness of our God. And the same theme continues on in the following verses. So in verse 13, he's a God who does not need teaching or instruction. In verse 14, he's a God who does not need counsel because he knows already everything from beginning to end. And then look at what we're told in verse 15. We're told the great nations are like a drop in the bucket or like a dust on the scale. Again, this is a poetic picture. And if you want a more modern illustration, I always think of this verse when I'm making toast in the morning. That may sound a little bit strange to you, but you know what happens when you make toast? You, you butter the toast, you, you put marmalade on it, and then what do you do with the breadboard? You wipe away the crumbs because they're nothing. And Isaiah says the nations are like that compared to God. The glory of Babylon is like the leftover dust on the scales. The other big nation of the time, Assyria, is like the drops of water in a bucket. And in our own day, the growing power of China, the economic and military might of America, and the ambitions of Russia, Germany, France, Britain, or whoever you would like to mention, are nothing but crumbs on our breadboard in the morning. They're nothing. And as a result, they have no hope of ever thwarting the plans and purposes of our great God. Now, as you can imagine, systematic theologians have had an absolute field day when it comes to these verses. Pages and pages are written on them because they're a wonderful revelation of the character of our God. But, you know, as we consider them, we need to be careful that we do not miss the wood for the trees. We need to be careful we don't miss the main point, and that is the magnificence, the power, and the glory of this wonderful God. Isaiah is saying there is no one like him. There is no one who can compare with him. And therefore, there is no one who can stop him. And as Isaiah brings comfort and hope to these despairing people, he's saying, behold your God and try and begin to comprehend his greatness and his power. But one more thing, very quickly, and that is it's not just the power that Isaiah focuses on. That's incredibly important. But it's not the only part of the character that Isaiah reminds these people of. For as well as power and majesty, he speaks of grace and mercy and compassion. So in the opening verses, God speaks to his sinful people and he wants to bring comfort to them. And then in verse 9, Isaiah has encouraged the people to behold their God. And yes, in verse 10, he speaks of God's might. But look at what the purpose of that might is. Look at verse 11. He says, it's to tend his flock like a shepherd. It's to gather the lambs in his arms. It's to carry them in his bosom. And it's to gently lead and protect the vulnerable. Again, they're obviously poetic pictures. But again, look at what they're telling us. They're telling us our God of might and power is compassionate and loving. They're telling us he's forgiving and caring. And they're telling us with all the power and glory. There is love 
There is patience, there is kindness, and there is goodness. In these verses, Isaiah is simply telling us our God is great and our God is good. Friends, surely that's something we need to remember. We need to remember that the one who holds the the vast oceans in the hollow of his hand is our God, and yet he tenderly cares for his people. We need to remember that the one who counts the greatest rulers and authorities in this world as nothing more than drops of water in a bucket is the very one who sends his son to walk on this earth, to live amongst us, and to die for us so that we could be forgiven and reconciled with him. When you think about it, it's astonishing. It's just astonishing. And I hope you can see why we would do well to obey Isaiah's instruction and take a bit of time to behold our God. Well, time is more than gone, but do you see how Isaiah is seeking to bring God's comfort and help to these people? As Isaiah prepares these people for the trials of hell, he tells them God's promises are still real, God's word is still true, and God's character is still great. I hope you can see why it's important we learn the same truths. None of us know what the future holds. None of us know what's around the corner. But we can behold our God. We can rest on his promises. And we can trust in his word, which he says will stand forever.